by you! BT! Since when is it a bounty hunter's job to chase after a woman's butt instead of chasing after money? Howdy, cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, I'm so excited to talk about this week's episode, one of my personal favorites, Heavy Metal Queen. But before we move on to that... We have some housekeeping. We've Uh-oh. never had to do this before. Did we screw up? I screwed up. Uh, typical. You mentioned last week that Sympathy for the Devil aired on Adult Swim on December 16th, 2001. And we just moved right along. Yeah. <laughs> I should have probably asked you, do you think that's because they're still a little queasy about 9-11? Um, I mean, probably. I mean, they were airing all these episodes in September. It was time for Sympathy for the Devil. They skipped it and then aired it way later after the fact. Yeah. I- I'm guessing there was a lot of conscious decisions to push a lot of things backwards until people could kind of sort out like what was culturally appropriate in the wake of that. Also, I do think it's worth pointing out that this is, after all, Cartoon Network starting off with Adult Swim. They hadn't really tested the waters to see how far they could push it. I mean, Aqua Team was like a jokey show, Harvey Birdman, another just comedy show. Open Violence? They hadn't really done that yet on their kids' network. So maybe the idea of having a child getting shot in the head a couple of times, eh, maybe didn't match up with their philosophy. Pump the brakes on that one. But that is last week's history. Let's talk about this week's history with Bebop history. And the subject this week is the voice actor for Faye Valentine, Wendy Lee. Steve, what do you think about Wendy Lee's voice acting on Bebop so far? I think it's actually been great. And one of my biggest criticisms is it can often be difficult with dubs, not only to find competent voice actors and actresses. A lot of times you get what I call the anime gas. People start talking really fast to you know, get all their lines in. And then there's a pause where they can't actually say anything. So everybody goes, (gasps) and it's just like, oh my God, stop it. That's a good observation, actually. And it totally matches up with Wendy's history because she started off in Los Angeles, California. That's where she was born. And she was a lifelong performer. She was a dancer and a studio vocalist, as in, you know, a singer. Uh, One day, an audio engineer friend of hers asked her if she would like to help audit an audition for voice acting. Now, in case you don't know, (laughs) if not in the biz, (laughs) auditing audition is like being another ear in the room. So when the director and the casting director are like, we really like them, but we need some more feedback, they have a random person in the room that's like, yeah, they sound good. Anyway, during the auditions, they turned to Wendy and asked, would you like to try out for a part? And she said yes. And a few months later, she was given her very first voiceover role in a series called Robotech. Now, Steve, Robotech was pretty big in the 80s, and it reran in the 90s. Have you ever seen any episodes of that? I probably have. So, again, we know we've established that I am, you know, an anime idiot, and I know what Robotech is. So that means it had to have been big if I'm, you know, aware of it. I guarantee I've seen some of it. I guarantee I've seen some of the video game stuff associated with it. Uh, I couldn't tell you anything about it or how it differs from, say, like Gundam or Macross, I believe. Is that another one? Macross? I am so, so, so glad you said that. If we can do a sidebar here, Robotech is the weirdest show ever to air on children's television. Here we go. 
So Robotech is about like a war with people that have robots and jet planes. It's awesome. If you were a kid and you saw it, you would be like a huge fan. It's like G.I. Joe. Bingo. But it's like ongoing and more serious. Now you keep in mind, this is anime before the era of people actually buying VHS tapes. So the only way to make money is to sell it to children. And Robotech was actually Super Dimension Fortress Macross. Yes, Robotech was Macross. Whoa, you're blowing my young anime mind right now. <laughs> Now, like I said, it's only 36 episodes long, and that's a problem because it became very successful very quick. So what did they do for episode 37? Eh, they just imported Super Dimension Calvary Southern Cross, which is another part of Macross. This new series took place 110 years in the future, but for whatever reason, they pretended it took just 15 years in the future. So they referenced all the characters from the original series. Oh, that's weird. Oh, and in Japan, this was not connected whatsoever narratively. They just forced it in for Robotech. Because, hey, same robots. Oh, and by the way, that was only 23 episodes long. So once again, when that ended, Robotech abruptly had to just import Genesis Climber Mosepeta, I think is what it's called. And apparently they just picked that series because the robots looked alike. This is deeply troubling. And they pretended this is more Robotech. And the kids watching are like, wow, why does and the animation look the same anymore. So Robotech became a beloved series for its ambitious storytelling, and it was super cool back in the day, when in reality it was a complete bastardization of three amazing shows. The closest thing I could think of is like maybe if the Star Wars trilogy was chopped up and turned into a TV show, and then they started airing Battlestar Galactica and said, no, it's still Star Wars. That would actually be hilarious. I'm totally on board for that. Well, that's exactly what happened with Robotech. Anyway, Sinitro Wantanabe, the director of Cowboy Bebop, would later go on to direct Macross Plus. So Macross Plus, if you're an American, is actually part of Robotech. That was a fun sidebar. Man, why is anime so fucked up? (laughs) Well, you see the tentacle. Uh, It's gotta go somewhere. It's gotta go somewhere. (laughs) Anyway, if you're watching Robotech, Wendy Lee played Vanessa Leeds in the first 36 episodes. You might remember her being the nerdy woman that was always panicking while looking at a monitor. Vanessa, can you give us a view of that underground trap? Yes, sir. An attack force of battle pods. (gasps) They're surrounding the entire area, Captain. It looks like there's thousands of them. Wendy's voice acting career started well enough before immediately hitting a brick wall when the voice actors abruptly decided they wanted to bump up in their pay for a dollar per line and they wanted to unionize at the exact same time. Now, Wendy herself said she was all for a union and she was all for a bump in pay, but doing them both at the exact same time, well, it pretty much killed the American anime industry. And so overnight, Canadian companies like Ocean took all their jobs. Now, it was because of this that between 1985 and 1993, she only had three roles in animation, which in case you don't know is fucking abysmal for a voice actor. And by the way, if you look at her internet movie database, you'll see she had a ton of roles in that time period, but that's because they're all animes that were produced that time period and then dubbed later on. Now, luckily for Wendy, she would find work as a script adapter and voiceover director for another Japanese import, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Kind of a mashup of cool space shit, cool kung fu shit, and cool like Godzilla monsters fighting shit. So those are all things that I'm super into as a kid. So I see this and I'm like, yeah, it's still on. It's constantly changing. It's, you know, they're going to space. They're becoming animals. They're just they're doing everything. The Power Rangers done a lot of shit. As a side note, I was at a bar the other day and they had a TV where they were playing Mighty Morphin Power Rangers off of Netflix. And the bartender was arguing with an older guy. The kid, the kid behind the bar was just like, 
there's no way this is a Japanese show. Almost everybody on this show is white except for the Yellow Ranger. And I'm like, dipshit. Let's look at this real quick. One, everything looks like ass <laughs> because it's an older show. Two, look at Rita Repulsa. You may notice that she's the only villain that's revealing her face, and she just happens to be Asian. And then he's just like, well, I don't know, man, blah, blah, blah. And then it was perfect because there's this episode of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers where Rita Repulsa sends down a uh, spaceship with monsters in it. And then there's this whole sequence where it's landing. The spaceship itself has Japanese flags on the wings. <laughs> and then there's all these like point of view shots from the spaceship where it's almost running over people in the streets. And there's just like Japanese construction workers. that are like, whoa, they duck down a manhole. And I'm like, look at that shit. And then the bartender finally was like, OK, you're right. <laughs> And in case you don't know, for some reason, the fight scenes are all from Japan. Well, there was Wendy Lee. She was the script adapter and the voiceover director for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And funny enough, her voice acting career took off at the exact same time as a director. Heck, she even directed the Cowboy Bebop ADR director, Mary Elizabeth McGillen, before Mary Elizabeth McGillen directed her in Cowboy Bebop. It's a very incestuous industry. Now, Wendy went on to direct the ADR of anime such as Love Hina and Outlaw Star, while her voice acting credits have ballooned to over 400 series, including Kayone on the Tenchi series, once again, a series that is near and dear to my heart, Sayoka in the Persona 4 animation, Ryoko on Samurai Girl, Real Bout High School, and a ton of characters on Bleach. And she directed nearly every English dub of the Tales RPG series. Oh. That's cool. I've played almost all of those. Well, at least the early ones on PS1 and PS2. What do you think about the voice acting there? Uh, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, they were kind of like, especially the early ones, like Tales 1 and 2 were pretty low budget. I will say, I will say, in the original Tales of Destiny, there's a bard character and he has my all-time favorite uh, voice dubbing stuff because like the only time you hear voices in the first game are when you're fighting and because he's a bard it's clearly someone who can't sing that they just asked to come in and he just goes like <laughs> you can thank Wendy Lee shout out to Wendy <laughs> Funny enough, though, she worked with the voice actor Spike, Steve Bloom, for a bunch of years, even directing him prior to their first collaboration on Cowboy Bebop. But ever since then, they've been paired together, even when the casting director was completely unaware of their previous work. Uh, fans of Big O will remember Roger Smith and Angel, as well as other shows like Roni Kenshin, and even games like The Bouncer. <laughs> the Bouncer. I like that game. Yeah. Now, Wendy's performance as Faye is apparently the biggest departure from the Japanese counterpart. While the original sounded more doting and mother Wendy's performance established her as a mature, feminine individual. Whereas Wendy recalled hearing an interview with the Japanese Faye saying that the character was vulgar. And Wendy thought, that's awesome. She said it all started with Faye's posture and clothing style. Which I don't know about you, but looking at that yellow latex, I would have no idea what she would sound like. I think it kind of makes sense with just Faye's body language in, in the show. Like, she's playful and at times very childish, but also she has this femme fatale quality to her. So I, I think... She nails it with the voice acting. Now, posture is how she generally decides how to voice a character. Wendy is always avoiding listening to the original Japanese, but pays close attention to a character's shoes. Yes, really. And how they stand when they aren't talking to keep hold of their personality, as if she was performing to a live audience. I think that really makes the difference. And she never likes to see a character in motion. She always prefers just looking at still art. And to put this all in perspective, she's one of the few voice actors who has stayed in the anime dub scene 
since its inception. But she never lets that go to her head. As she once said, Today I'll be an anime queen, but when I get home tomorrow, it's right back to cleaning the cat box. Me too, Wendy. Me too. Now Steve, we're gonna be watching Heavy Metal Queen today. What exactly is this named after? I don't know. It could be a song by Czar. It could be a song by Trance. Um, it certainly sounds like something that Iron Maiden may have recorded. There's a little bit of like system of a down in there, I think. Uh, I immediately thought of Mississippi Queen for some reason. I could see that. By the band Mountain, which is a pretty dumb song from the 1970s. One time, I saw Mountain and Jefferson Starship. Mountain decided to open with the song Mississippi Queen, their biggest hit. And would you like to know, Colin, what they decided to close with during that show? Mississippi Queen. Mississippi Queen is the exact answer. Well, let's talk about Czar and Trans for a second. Because Czar, hear me out. They are a French-Canadian group of three brothers, and they only released one album called Players in the Game in 1985, and you're listening to it right now. <laughs> now, the album is extremely rare, so this might not be likely, but let's talk about it for a moment. Watanabe's a musical hipster. Wouldn't he go for something that's more rare? Like French-Canadian butt rock from the 80s? Hey, it's 1985. It's the exact same year as uh, Fallen Angels by Dio. Now, the more well-known song is by the foundational German metal group Trance, founded in in 1977 as Age, they later changed their name to Trance, and Heavy Metal Queen was a single, as well as the opening track to their 1983 album, Power Infusion, which has a big beefy arm plugging in to a speaker. It's awesome. That's the album cover? It really is, yeah. Love me some beefy arms on my album covers, let me tell you. I gotta be honest with you, I listen to it, I love this song. It's super good if you're into things like Scorpions and early Ozzy Osbourne and Dio. It's it's like a good metal song. Yeah, so if you're a fucking nerd who needs a wedgie, <laughs> I'm kidding. Am I kidding? Why must you mock the Heshers? <laughs> but good luck keeping up with Trance after this because they've had 17 members all together. Whoa. And they've changed their name to Transmission and, and then back to Trance. And they've never had much success here in the United States, but Heavy Metal Queen was a number one hit in the UK, Belgium, and Newfoundland, and their albums sold very well in Japan, even into the 90s. Seems like that's probably our winner then. But now that that's over, let's get to another special thing. Cowboy Bebop UT. Wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought there were no spinoffs. I thought there were no sequels. But there was. Is this Cowboy Bebop Utah? Cowboy Bebop Urinary Track? We'll get to that in just a moment. But let's flash back to 2002. I was actually going to CowboyBebop.com on the reg because they were advertising the movie. <coughs> Nerd. <coughs> Wait, what? Little bit. But they were talking about the movie and they even had a brand new English section to their website. And they had something called Cowboy Bebop UT which was apparently Watanabe's next project after Bebop. Now, I guess he was really attached to the idea of the concept of the character VT and her galaxy-famous husband having their own series of adventures. In fact, he wrote a prose version of their story and released on CowboyBebop.com in 2002, before it was immediately abandoned. It would have starred Uriel Tepskore, the character that we talk about later in this episode. He was going to be a 31-year-old entertainment journalist for the Jupiter Daily, but once he gets fired, he's approached to investigate a blackmail attempt on a pop star. And that's all the story we got, because apparently Watanabe gave it up. <laughs> oh. But this story would have led to him becoming the most legendary bounty hunter of all time. Now, I don't know about you, but just reading into this, it sounds like Watanabe was having perhaps a midlife crisis. I mean, we're having someone at age 31 that doesn't quite know what they're doing in life yet, and they're working in entertainment, and yet somehow they're going to become the most important person in their field ever. But I think it's better that Watanabe gave this up and worked on his own thing, even though it sounds awesome. 
Now, Steve, when did Heavy Metal Queen air? Thanks for asking, Colin. Heavy Metal Queen aired on TV Tokyo April 17th, 1998, on my favorite TV channel of all time, Wow Wow, on December 5th, 1998, and on Adult Swim, September 23rd, 2001. Wait a minute. This is an episode that actually aired on TV Tokyo, the fourth episode ever. That's a pretty big deal. That is a pretty big deal. And I don't want to show my cards too much, but I'm pretty happy for TV Tokyo because I think this is a really good one. And part of the reason is because it was directed by Hirokazu Yamada, who goes on to direct four more episodes. He's a first-time director here, and he's one of my personal favorites. I looked at all the episodes he did. He has a fantastic grasp of when to use animation and when to use still images. And it was written by Michiko Yokote, who also wrote Stray Dog Strut and Ballad of Fallen Angels. Let's talk about her later in the episode, because I think she uses every part of the story. There's no wasted dialogue, and there's no wasted characters. I just love the way she writes. This episode opens as... Any great sci-fi cartoon from the late 90s should. And that's with space trucks. So we actually see an establishing shot in space to open an episode for the first time since uh, episode four. And of course, we get blaring heavy metal music over these giant space trucks that we're seeing flying through the sky. Time out here. Steve, what did you think when you turned this on? Because we've had a very set pattern of music so far, which is kind of jazzy, kind of poppy. When you heard this... What'd you think? I was a little shocked. It didn't feel very beboppy to me, but then given the name of the actual episode, it made sense. I will say that when the episode started streaming and the music started blaring, my cat jumped up and did that like Halloween cat thing where he like arches his back and like walks sideways. <laughs> so he was not into it. Not to mention this intro here, there's no people. It's just a truck going into a, a dock. That's pretty amazing. That's just a lot of world building, you know? Colin, why don't you tell me about the song that scared the shit out of my cat? Because I'm guessing your nerd ass did some research. Absolutely. The song is called Live in Baghdad, and that had a much cooler title before the war started, let me tell you. Ugh. It is sung by Masaki Endo, a prolific Japanese vocalist who's best known for his work in anime. Now, normally we try to dig a little deeper into an artist's real-life story. However, Endo's Wikipedia is clearly written by some sort of bizarre syncophat. It would be journalistically irresponsible for me not to have Steve read this out loud. (laughs) 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 All right, so Steve, tell here's the paragraph. Tell me a little bit about Endo according to the final paragraph in his Wikipedia. <clears throat> a dramatic reading by Steve Cuff. <laughs> his nickname is the Young Lion of Anison, and he goes by the motto, always full voice. Endo took the industry by storm when he released two Ensign albums and the subsequent third, in which he covered many famous anime theme songs. If by taking the industry by storm, you mean it peaked at 43 on the Japanese charts and then fell off after three weeks, oh, and that other album, it reached 50 and then fell off completely after six weeks, then sure, he took the anime industry by storm. He took the anime industry by a light rain. <laughs> because he was in the rugby club in high school... Masake Endo was very physically fit, (laughs) with chest measurements of 120 centimeters, now measuring 105 centimeters. Who who includes that? What does that even mean? Who's measuring this guy's body? Uh, He dislikes coriander and has a difficult time with the food abroad when touring with Jam Project, so he brings along Japanese instant noodles. He also dislikes being alone in hotel rooms and hates roller coasters. (laughs) He is often referred to as Enchan by fellow Jam Project members. I have a strange feeling that 
my boy may have written his own page. I would say that if you were looking for company on a regular basis, you might mention in your Wikipedia that you don't like being alone in hotel rooms. Yeah, and then this next line is even weirder. Uh, he says that his penis also measures 54 centimeters? That seems like a lot. Long story short, no pun intended there, he likes to perform anime songs live, and he goes on tour with other anime musicians, and he does some original work as well. He is not a famous star in Japan. I don't know who wrote this. Uh, wait, you haven't heard of the Jam Project? Oh, who could forget the Jam Project? Oh, and by the way, the idea that his nickname is the Young Lion of Anison. No, no one references this anywhere else but the Wikipedia. You know what they called me in the 90s? The young Jennifer of Aniston. First of all, if you go through his Wikipedia, there's no sources, and there's also no citation needed. So no one reads this fucking thing. <laughs> anyway, we can get back to the show. So in the intro, we saw the trucking system of 2071. What do you think, Steve? The whole triangle shape and everything like that. Does this seem practical? No, it doesn't. It just looks cool. Um, <laughs> it's damn. I just like how it it still makes it feel like kind of crowded and big and it, it really emphasizes the length of these giant spaceships. It's completely impractical. There's absolutely no reason why these things should exist. They're just cool. Also, you notice how none of them ever went to hyperspace? They would clearly be using the freeway if they were truckers. No way, man. You know I made it all the way to Venus in just three days. Anyway, we cut inside of the trucker stop. I'm not sure what they would call it in the future. And we get our very first shot of Zero's the Cat. Dude, yeah. Now, I don't even understand this shit. So we're at a truck stop after we have these, like, cool truck things. Like, this whole episode is very cool, by the way. I'm going to use the word cool, like, 9,000 times. Everybody's just walking and being a cool trucker. But Zero's the Cat, like, floats in, like, arms out. Why is Zero's the Cat floating? I was thinking about that, too. Can we just agree that they did it because it's adorable? Yes, but I actually did look up some studies about cats and zero gravity. <laughs> I forgot that I did this. You are actually the biggest fucking dork in the universe. Let me tell you. Uh, there are some cats that adapt to zero gravity very well and they like it. And there are others that just start flinging around all their paws because they have no idea what's going on. That would be my cat. But I think it, we can say right off the bat, Zero's the cat is the coolest character in Cowboy Bebop so far. He may be named <laughs> Zero's, but he's number one in my heart. Aww. We see our brand new character, our central character, VT, getting called out by a friend of hers who is walking on the ceiling. I just love that there's just zero gravity everywhere and that guy's just walking around. The design on VT, super awesome. I love how Early she is with the blonde hair. She almost kind of reminds me of, this is going to be a really bizarre reference, but you know the uh, the main character from Confederacy of Dunces? Ignatius Riley? Kind of if they're, <laughs> she's like the cool version of that. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's like a blonde Ignatius Riley, but cool. <laughs> with, the, with the cap and everything? It's weird that she's a trucker and doesn't have a hot dog stand though. So this is one of the first times we see this reoccurring thing in this Cowboy Bebop episode. And this is another thing too, where Bebop likes to bookend stuff or kind of like echo or do like a call and response thing in episodes. So we have this thing that goes through the entire episode where we have character VT and people try to guess her name. So this is the first time like a, a guy walks by is just like, hey, blah, 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 blah. I'm a trucker. He's far nicer than that. Yeah, right. He's much nicer than that. Okay. You've only got one shot and you get no clues. All right. VT. I say your name is Val Tamiana. Nice try. Oh, no. This is a bad sign. You be careful now, Otto. 
And so she's just got this fat stack of cash the entire time throughout the episode. And this this happens probably like, I don't know, three, four times to her at least. At least, yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of weird though, because it's like, why aren't you spending any of that money? Mm-hmm. Like if you won money from people, wouldn't you spend it instead of like continuously adding to this giant stack? Because doesn't that just assume that like she's going to lose it all eventually, right? Well, she's a big trucker that likes to get to Venus in three days and back. I think she just likes seeing how big the money will get. I think that's kind of her, her yeah. personality. She has a big personality. I mean, yeah, it is a good visual. I'll give her that. I, that's the thing with this episode. I, this is probably the thing with a lot of things in this show and a lot of popular culture and entertainment. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> She's just got a fat stack because it looks cool. Why doesn't she want people to know her name? Ooh. Well, I, I guess that's kind of answered at the end of the episode. But I I think she's sort of kind of taken on this trucker identity mm. and she does seem sort of insulated from other people and everybody knows her, but they don't know a lot about her, which is really indicative of who she is as a character. And we kind of learn a little bit throughout the course of this episode. And then at the end, it all kind of comes together. Yeah, I get the feeling, though, that like she had the world's most famous, or not the world, the universe's most famous bounty hunter as a husband. I think she just doesn't want all the, I don't know, fanboys. And we see what, what bounty hunters are actually like. I don't blame her for not liking bounty hunters. You know what I mean? Sure. I just love this medium shop we have right here where uh, she tells him that he didn't get the answer right and she just has zeros right up against her shoulder and she's looking directly into the camera. It is a hero shot. I'm going to be gushing a lot about VT. I think she is amazing. All right. So now we jump over to Max Diner where there's like a small group of people that are sitting around outside and there's a guy with a Russian accent that uh, he's bragging about his $8 million catch from 10 years ago. $8 million Wulong catch. That's right. My bad. There's another guy who's unimpressed by store and he t- and the man tells the group that he taught Tepscore everything he knows as VT and Zeros kind of stroll past them into the restaurant. How cool is that though that like just everything's just leading into everything? Yeah, just kind of like going on around them. And then also clearly we're sort of establishing there's a bunch of fucking bounty hunters and truckers all just kind of hanging out together. It's a real surly crowd. The next shot of just everyone in that restaurant when the bell goes off and they all turn around and they go, oh, never mind. I love that so much because you know right away there's something up. And I, I really like how the, the cat is just sort of chilling with her at the bar. Like it's no big deal. Everybody just accepts that this cat's just going to hang out here. The bartender says hello to the cat. And yeah. then looks up and goes, oh, hi, VT. <laughs> yeah, well, and it, and it shows again, like, it's like, why why is this happening? Well, one, it's fun. Two, the cat is cute. But three, it just shows kind of like how much respect VT sort of commands in this universe, which is pretty cool. Yeah, there's no wasted anything. And also, I love that Zeros enjoys a glass of water with ice cubes in it, just licking away. Just a very cat-like animation there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, VT doesn't want to tell us her name. But that doesn't mean that VT doesn't actually stand for a different name. As pointed out in the Bebop Wikia, VT shares the exact same initials as, um, let me make sure I got this right, Valentina Tereskova. I believe that's her name, but she's the very first woman ever in space. Vostok 6 was a solo mission to see the effects of space travel on women. So not only did she pilot the rocket by herself, she also set up and descended in a capsule alone, landing in seven kilometers south of Bavo, where a statue of her now stands. Of course, this was in 1963, but Valentina is still alive at 81 years old, and she's still ambitious. She has repeatedly stated her interest in going Going to Mars, even if it's just a one-way trip. And at one point, she made this request directly to the face of Vladimir Putin. And honestly, she looks quite a bit like VT, albeit with uh, brown hair instead of blonde. How cool is she, man? That's pretty baller. All right, so back to the show here. This is where we sort of established, we've noticed as the audience that like, oh, there's bounty hunters here, there's truckers here. 
but the bartender just kind of straight up says it like, oh, there's a bunch of bounty hunters. What's up? You know, bounty hunters, hunting bounties. Yeah, these are nice people. These are she, people. She's I'm surrounded sorry. by nice people and you're making them sound uh, like Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, a little bit. And then the other thing that we learned here in this exact scene is everybody poops. Oh, God. I don't know. He looks pretty dehydrated. This is weird because I, I can't think of like many scenes in a cartoon that I've seen where we're watching a character drop a deuce. I don't think Spike is dropping. Okay, okay, whoa. He's definitely pooping. Let's talk about Spike pooping. He's, I mean, he's kind of like hungover. You can kind of see in his face. He's like, Ugh. but he is sitting on the toilet. Yes. Uh-huh. And his pants are down. You can see his legs and the little hairs on his leg. Yeah. So he, you're telling me he's not pooping. He's just sitting on a toilet with his pants around his legs. I think he's trying. Um. Wait, are you saying you pee sitting down? Is that what you're saying? I would absolutely. No, <laughs> what I'm saying is Which, that. Which, by the way, if you're a man and you pee sitting down, you make that choice. That's fine. We support you. Absolutely. But. I think that he's so dehydrated because you see those those awful bags under his eyes. I think he's trying to get whatever he can out of his system. I don't think anything's moving. Dude, when you drink a lot, even when you're super dehydrated, you take the nastiest poops in the world. He's taking a nasty, nasty poop, I guarantee you. Well, what'd you think of this exactly? Seeing Spike for the very first time in a... <laughs> A state of hungover vulnerability. It's not often you see that in any show, I think. No, I was kind of taken aback by it. And I, I sort of like, I, I had to, it took me a while to process that I was watching a cartoon character take a dump. <laughs> but I'm on board with and it. And was hungover. But but mostly taking a dump. We're going to have to agree to disagree. Let the wiki show that there was no plopping sound. But uh, let's actually look at this scene a different way, maybe in a psychopathic way. There's a piece of paper hanging in front of the bathroom stall, and it has text written in English in it. It says, I wrote a letter to Highland once, asking him if I could use his ideas. I don't remember which song or which book now, but he wrote back to me and said, oh my God, you're the first person out of thousands who's stolen my ideas, who's written and asked. That's a pretty specific quote, isn't it? And that's because it's taken from one of Steve's favorite bands ever, Jefferson Airplanes, Paul Cantor. That's weird that I was just talking about Jefferson Starship. That's a totally different group. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> this interview is from the August of 1984 issue of Heavy Metal Magazine, just pointing to the idea that in the mid-80s, Watanabe and probably people on the staff were really into metal. Oh, and it's Heavy Metal Queen. So actually, that makes a lot of sense. Also, big shout out to the Bebop Wikia because I could not see that text. Someone else discovered that. I love how Spike is rambling, though, about like how this is supposed to be exclusive information. There are bounty hunters everywhere. And then he just like chuckles to himself like, oh, Faye's in that other place. She'll never find anything there. Well, and this is the first time they mentioned the guy that they're looking for, right? Decker, yeah. Decker. And is that is that another Blade Runner reference? Oh, I didn't even think about that. Probably. Look at you, research boy. But Faye is over at a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant. Yeah, it's fucking weird. It's really weird. I want this poster of Faye looking disappointed at this majestic Sunday, The giant ice cream Sunday, And there's like kids and like costume characters running around and balloons. She's so sad. And then also randomly, just like the other. So in addition to like, this is clearly like Chuck E. Cheese. Yes, yes. But yes. Faye's in there eating alone, looking sad and dejected in like her like yellow vinyl sexy time clothes, which is kind of weird. 2071 fashion is very accepting. That's true. But in addition to that, we have multiple just lone men who are like pretty like disheveled and mean looking kind of sitting around. But the name of the restaurant is Woody's P, which is kind of gross. Yeah. What do you think the P stands for? Okay. So <laughs> this big burly guy rolls in. He's got two chains. He's looking tough. And he sits down and Faye 
actually flirts and it works. Her charm worked for once. Yeah, because he's like, what are you looking for? And she's like, basically, I want to go to the bone zone with you. I don't think those are the exact lines, but more or less. I have to say this guy, despite looking so intimidating, he seems like a really nice gentleman. As we'll discover, he really likes eels. Mm-hmm. So, of course, he would go to the children's restaurant. He's kind of a softie. So, this this is, it's a great gag because she, like, cozies up to him, right? And then she pulls out the gun, sticks it under his chin, and he's like, Ugh. I'm all yours. Put your hands up. What I do wrong? It's no use playing innocent. I can see the edge of your dragon tattoo. <gasps> you got the wrong guy. <gasps> hey, you with the glasses. Put a call into the police. Let him know I caught Decker. Mm-hmm. And then you see this little guy who looks like a cross between Leisure Suit Larry and Woody Allen. And then all of a sudden she looks up and she sees that he's got a dragon tattoo, just like the guy that she was looking for. And then she looks down and she's like, wait, what the fuck? Don't you have a dragon tattoo? And she just tears open this guy's shirt. And it's just like this smiling eel. It's so adorable. He's like, I just really like eels. (laughs) But it makes a lot of sense why a guy like that who is open to having an adorable tattoo, would go and get an ice cream sundae. It would, yeah. No, he's he's confident in his, you know, everyday life. You know, he can express himself any way that he wants to. Now, everywhere I've read about this, everyone, I've said it, you've said it, he looks like Woody Allen. Kind of random. Yeah. For a Japanese show. Well, and we don't really hear him talk either. He has no lines. He has no lines. But he just does like the Woody Allen, like nervous, like, Ooh, yeah, you know, I, I just, you know, I, I, I was down, I was in Manhattan, and then this smuggler, he gave me all these explosives, and, you know, I just had to move it to here, to the asteroid, and then. What do you think about these movies? You're more of the type that watches 70s era film. Sure. So I think Woody Allen's early career was, it was much more farcical. So, so he had films like Bananas, which was like, it kind of made fun of like Fidel Castro, Banana Republic stuff. <sighs> uh, not the clothing brand. Uh, and then you had Sleeper, which was kind of a farce that made fun of uh, the future, more or less. Like there's just all these ridiculous like, you know, robots and, and hilarious domestic situations that are it's like, oh, the technology is making me nervous. It does look a lot like like an Apple store, though. Yeah, quite a bit. So these are much more like broad kind of goofy comedies. And then as you kind of move towards uh, the middle of the 1970s, you have Manhattan and Annie Hall, which are very similar films mm. in which Woody Allen plays kind of a dopey, nervous guy who's, you know, sort of down on his luck, and he falls in love with a younger woman. Now, in Annie Hall's case, uh, the titular Annie Hall is, uh, I mean, you know, visibly younger, but like, like not like mm, young. Seven years, maybe eight years. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, and Woody Allen has always looked old. That's kind of his thing. <laughs> he was a stand-up comedian, and he looked old in his yes, 20s. Yes, he's always looked very old. And then you have Manhattan... Uh, which is structurally, I think, very similar to Annie Hall. And people go back and forth between which one is his masterpiece. Manhattan is actually a black and white film, takes place entirely in New York. And this one's really weird, though, because it's another movie where down in his luck, kind of awkward, Woody Allen dates a younger woman. And by younger woman, I mean 17, but she looks really young. And in the movie, Woody Allen's character, I'm not sure how old he was, but he's like in his early to mid 40s. That's no joke. Like 45 year old dude, 17 year old girl, played by Mariel Hemingway, who looks real young. More on that in just a moment. But why on earth are they putting Woody Allen in a Japanese cartoon? Well, 
What most people don't know is Woody Allen was actually a trailblazer in Japan, being one of the first Western celebrities to become a spokesperson for a Japanese brand. In 1982, Allen became the face of Cebu department stores, including their print and television ad campaign, though he never spoke any lines. Usually it was just physical comedy, like him carrying too many shopping bags. <laughs> well, optimistic early 80s J-pop played in the background. Ah, hell, let's just listen to it for right now. Now, rumor has it that the people that ran the department store didn't even know who Woody Allen was. They just saw a picture of him and went, oh, that's an American. So they hired him. But these days... <laughs> well, it's getting hot in here. I need to adjust my collar. Let's just have a big asterisk that says allegedly for everything we're about to say. Yeah, allegedly. Well, some of this is pretty true and documented. Undeniably, Woody Allen is best known for the following. Marrying his adopted daughter, Soon Yi. Who hasn't been? There. Now, Yi was adopted by his wife at the time, Mia Farrow, and her then-husband, Andre Praveen. Uh, but by the time Sun Yi was seven or nine, she was living with Farrow's new husband, Woody Allen. And we keep saying seven or nine because we actually don't know her age. She was growing up in Korea, which was not doing well at all in the 70s. When Suyi was 19 or 21, Mia Farrow discovered a series of nude photographs taken by Alan, which he admitted, and also admitted that he had a sexual affair with her. Now, no one is sure when the relationship began, and Alan's explanations have been wildly inconsistent, but the story exploded in the tabloids in 1992, especially in Japan, when Farrow filed for divorce. It was funny then when Woody Allen spoke those lines in his film, Manhattan. But now some are not laughing on the streets of Manhattan. The 57-year-old filmmaker and his longtime lover, Mia Farrow, broke up. And now Allen confirms he is having an affair with Farrow's adopted daughter, who's 21 years old. In a written statement, Allen says, Regarding my love for Suni, it's real and happily all true. She's lovely, intelligent, sensitive woman who has and continues to turn my life around in a wonderfully positive way. They say art imitates life. Woody Allen has certainly mastered that. In his upcoming film, Husbands and Wives, he's set to play a professor who falls in love with a college student. I'm older than my father. Can you believe that? Now, it's worth noting, this is kind of weird and kind of gross, but not illegal. Like, it's just weird. Okay? So, nothing illegal going on here. It's just like, huh, okay, so you're adopted. I feel like you're just putting the ball on the tee right now. Like, not illegal, but... <laughs> adopted stepdaughter who is like 30 years your junior. Uh, you know who's never really said anything about this? Soon Yi. Mm -hmm. So, we don't really know how consenting that is. At this point, let's assume that everything is kosher. Why not? Sure. Our lawyers are giving us the thumbs up. <laughs> Now, Stephen, answer me this. Think about what we're watching. There's a guy that looks like Woody Allen in a children's restaurant. Do you, it's even called Woody's Pee. Mm -hmm. 
Do you think maybe this was a big joke? Oh, this is absolutely 110% a jab at Woody Allen. For sure. Like, he could just be, like, some dorky guy in a children's restaurant. You can read it like that, Mm -hmm. but this was everywhere during the 90s. This was, like, the biggest, if not for O.J. Simpson, I think this would have probably been, like, the biggest scandal in any celebrity Mm -hmm. of that decade. Yeah, thank God they didn't have Twitter back then. So, aside from basically making a lot of mediocre movies for the last, like, 20 years. Well, you didn't like Match Game? again, allegedly, lawyers, you hear that? You hear it? Allegedly, he got he got involved in something that it's really bad. So you can Google that yourself. Well, okay. Um, now that we've gotten all past that, Steve, let's talk about this for a moment. She has the gun under fake Decker's chin, right? Yeah. yeah. She tells real Decker to go call the cops, and she's going to wait there. Remember in episode four when Twinkle Maria Murdoch was inside the restaurant and then they put her on the bebop and we had to make up some bizarre scenario in which, oh, they couldn't just give them to the cops at the restaurant? Yeah. This disproves that. They're even at another restaurant. Um, actually, Colin, uh, when it comes to space truck stops, it's totally different than on the planet they were on in that episode. This is my anime uh, Wikipedia voice. I can't believe that, though. They actually made such a huge mistake. This whole series is fucked. Uh, <laughs> Everything's bad. Bad now, no, it is. It is kind of a funny little inconsistency, but whatever. Uh, it makes for a funny little scene, so I'll take it. After this, Faye takes chase and she blasts off in her red tail and she sort of swirls around an elevator line with Decker inside before she nearly hits the ceiling. So you have this like really kind of like claustrophobic, goofy chase scene going on. And so she takes a shortcut and then she's chasing after Decker. And then Decker does this crazy thing where he takes a little like it's not quite a syringe. It looks almost like a hourglass, except with like rounded edges on the yeah. outside and he just kind of like it's full of this like orangey purpley liquid Can and we he talk sort about, of flicks it yeah wait a minute here remember in episode four once again i don't know why i keep referencing that when when Faye was just drinking a random orange fluid do they just go to orange whenever they don't know what to make co- the color i i don't know i have no clue but it, I, it's crazy because you see woody allen he just kind of flicks this little thing out and you're like what's that and then <laughs> it collides with Faye's ship and just like giant purple cloud explosion. And her poor ship is in pieces. But it's important. This is where she looks and she sees the uh, the Asian goddess on the truck, which we'll play in to the plot later. So we rejoin VT back at Max Diner, where a trio of sombrero-wearing ruffians start harassing the waitress. We're going to just call them the Sombrero Brothers, because I think the waitress calls them the Something Brothers. Why don't we do a portmanteau and we call them the Some Brothers? I love VT just kicking them in the head and saying, like, just leave her alone. (laughs) That's a fun little fight scene. A fun little fight scene. I think this is some of my favorite stuff in all of Cowboy Bebop. Think about this for a second. We don't really know who VT is, and she is fighting three people at once. Like, it's no problem. Mm -hmm. No, she's a badass. Hungover Spike. Let's talk about a use of animation here for a second, because they show Hungover Spike, and they use a lot of fluid animation to show him carefully taking a cracked egg and trying to make the prairie oyster. Mm-hmm. That's how you. That's when you want good animation. Kind of like when we were talking about in uh, episode three when Faye was sneaking, but they used limited animation so it looked bad. When you want people doing something on purpose and they're very focused, like the egg, that's when you want the animation. Once he spills it, they can show whatever. And poor Spike, he has nice pants. He spills it all over his nice pants when one of the Sombrero brothers crashes right into him. Such a cool use of music here right when the song turns into like a techno version of itself the switchblades come out and spike suddenly appears out of nowhere and just punches that guy we don't see the punch we just see spike standing there at a pose and it's better that way this whole fight sort of plays out like an old spaghetti western fight again which makes perfect sense because this is cowboy bebop and cowboy bebop loves yakuza films and loves spaghetti westerns so 
Uh, you get this like cool dodge when someone tries to slash uh, Spike in the face with a knife. Uh, and then he kind of elbows and kicks the guy back into the bar. Uh, and then that waitress from before pops up to smash a bottle over his head, which is classic, classic Western stuff. Oh, I love that next shot of VT just punching that guy in the face. And you see the people at the table like reacting as all this stuff flies into the air. Oh, yeah. It's like, it looks like a point of view shot, right? It's like first person when she, and she just like shatters the dude's face. Yeah, it's totally sweet. Which is done with a hand. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and then I body slam you through a table. Spike apparently has a lot of strength because he was able to take all three Sombrero brothers and throw them out the door at the exact same time. Um, You mean the Sombrothers. Uh, I'm sorry, the Sombrothers. <laughs> and I love that one just standing up and be like, we'll get you. He just turns around and just, oh, never mind. They run in a little zigzag. And oh, yeah. It's super cartoonish. Well, I mean, it's a cartoon, but I mean like old school, like Looney Tunes cartoon. But they didn't have to put in that extra effort of just making them zip from right to left. And it just, it shows how scared they are. Now, Steve, the song that was playing during this is one of my favorites in the series. It is called Doggy Dog 2. I'm more of a Doggy Dog 1 guy, but it is a solid sequel, you know? Can you tell us the lyrics to Doggy Dog? Yes, dramatic reading. Let's growl. We are stray dogs. Who has fooled us? You do. Nothing we get in a wave alone. Howl. We don't need no dog cracks. We live in the darkness. Yeah, that's right. We are the Doggy Dog Dogs. Wait, we, <laughs> no, I said that wrong. We are the Doggy Doggy Dogs. We are the Doggy Doggy Dogs. There's no wrong way when you're a Doggy Doggy Dogs. That is poignant. <laughs> Isn't it? Is this a Dylan song? I thought so. I've done a lot of research and I cannot find the source. How does it feel to be a Doggy Doggy Dog? But you can really tell that Watanabe is getting into the groove with the music uh, after episode five, of course, where Spike got thrown through the window and the use of drums during the confrontation between Spike and Wen. But like I said before, right when that techno beat kicks in and they pull out the switchblades, they are now directing to the music and the show is so much better for it. Back inside of Max Diner, VT vocalizes her hatred for bounty hunters, much to the surprise of Spike. I like how Spike is surprised too. It's just like, all you do is go to places and make shit blow up. Yeah. Or like break things. You, you aren't, think of, has there been a single episode where Spike merely existing in an area has not caused some sort of death or destruction. So yeah, I would hate bounty hunters too. Imagine if every time I walk into a room, like I, you know, I shot a hole in your wall or like crashed a spaceship into your shit. Like I, it's kind of a bummer. I think we're also learning about the universe that maybe the <clears throat> some bros are a good indication of the average bounty hunter. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then yeah, fuck bounty hunters. Also. Can we really call Spike a bounty hunter if we've never seen him collect a bounty? He's trying. I, I have no evidence that he's a successful bounty hunter. I can call myself a fucking cop all day, but if I don't have a badge and I've never arrested anyone, am I really a cop? But if I ask you, you have to tell me if yeah, you're a cop. Yeah, it's like, oh, Steve, what are you? Well, I'm a circus clown. Oh, where do you perform? I don't. Well, Spike saddles up with her at the bar, and she says drinks are on her. Of course, when we go back to the bebop, poor Ein is being fed bean sprouts by Jet. And Ayn is just kind of like looking like, dude, what the fuck? I'm, I'm not going to eat bean sprouts. Speaking of first person, we actually get, we see through the eyes of Ayn yeah, looking Ayn up at- Yeah, just like, what are you doing? <laughs> Basically. Even, you can see Jet being apologetic, but he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to own to it. You know? Exactly. So it's almost like when you're talking to a child and you know you're wrong, <laughs> but you also want the child to do the thing that you want them to do. So you act like you're right. <laughs> He's trying to feed Ayn these bean sprouts and, and Jet sort of like waves off Ayn's confused whining uh, by claiming, you know, bean sprouts are very healthy. And you know what, motherfucker? They are. Let me tell you about bean sprouts. You know what? My name's Colin. I always bring really obscure in-depth facts 
about mundane shit that nobody else has ever thought about. Guess what? Steve's here with some. Let me tell you about bean sprouts, bitch. They're incredibly healthy. Uh, they're a low calorie uh, thing that you would add to like a salad. Uh, if you're a disgusting bunny rabbit man, maybe you just eat them by themselves. Mostly they're kind of like a garnish. You can add them virtually anything. Great on sandwiches, great on salads. Uh, you can put them in like stir fry and shit. I keep them off my Mexican food, please. Every vegetarian Mexican dish puts bean sprouts on there. That does not belong on enchilada. Uh, they contain valuable nutrients, Colin. Uh, things like magnesium, vitamin K, iron, folate, vitamin C. Uh, they support good eyesight. They boost your immune system. They reduce heart disease, osteoporosis, and anxiety. Wow. Man, I should eat more bean sprouts. But let me tell you something, buddy. They're also prone to... E. coli. Which is good for you. No, that's bad. That'll fuck your shit up. The sandwich that I used to order from Jimmy John's, side note, don't order from Jimmy John's. That guy, like, literally kills elephants and shit. He's a dick. Fuck the titular Jimmy John. They did discontinue bean sprouts, I think, last year. Uh-huh. They're not discontinued, though. You can still order them. However, they don't automatically come on. And when you order that shit online for your Jimmy John's delivery, a little pop-up thing comes up, and they're like, yo... If you want these, we're not responsible if shit gets fucked up. Holy shit! But again, don't order Jimmy John's. But in 2071, they're dog food. And that's been Bean Sprout Chat. But back at Max Diner, we see Spike preparing a hangover cure known as the prairie oyster. Also, side note, speaking of uh, foodborne illness, don't do a prairie oyster. You shouldn't be eating raw eggs. What are you, fucking Rocky or sh some shit? You're going to get salmonella. Now, traditionally, the drink is made with black pepper, salt, vinegar, hot sauce, tomato juice, and Worcestershire sauce. All poured over an unbroken yolk, though Spike's version includes two shots of gin. Uh, which is kind of common in, in Hangover Cures, although I always saw it as a variant on the Prairie Fire, which is hot sauce and tequila uh, with, uh, you know, sometimes you add a little Worcestershire sauce. It's not that bad. It's it's like doing a, like a Bloody Mary with tequila, uh, except without the tomato juice. So what Spike is essentially doing is, you know, when, you, when you're really hungover and you go and you, and you get like a greasy breakfast. So I think the idea here is hair of the dog. I don't know what the Tabasco sauce does. Probably helps him poop. And uh, then the protein. I am so glad you asked. Scientists assume this is likely due to the digestion of ethanol, temporarily delaying the metabolism of methanol, which turns into formaldehyde and formic acid. By the way, all of that is super toxic. So Spike's plan here combines the increased metabolism of pepper, tomato juice, and hot sauce, the water retention of salt, the alertness provided by the vitamin B6 rich Worcestershire sauce, and the easy to digest pure protein of an egg yolk. Though the putrid combination will also probably probably result in someone vomiting, which is also a hangover cure. Though to truly be on the safe side, just drink a lot of water and protein. You drink an alcoholic drink, you get a glass of water. So I have a cowboy bebop fan theory, okay? Get your wikis open, because I'm about to drop some knowledge. Spike is hunched over at the bar, and you see the bottle of gin. Now it says, boof eater. <laughs> Clearly a riff on Beef Eater, which for under $20 is a good bottle of London Dry Gin. That's a little hot tip for you. Boofing is a, uh, a common term used to describe what has been known as butt chugging, which is where you pour alcohol in your butt because your butt can absorb alcohol faster. Now, you shouldn't do this. It's a lot of stuff in there that's not supposed to be absorbing that other stuff. And you know what? I know a guy who was really hungover, and his roommate, who I also know, was like, okay, listen, you need a little hair of the dog. Just take a couple shots of vodka. You'll be fine. 
And he's like, no, man, I got to go to work. And he was just like, dude, just pour it in your butt. He boofed the vodka. And you know what happened, Colin? He got real drunk. And then later when he was at work, his butt started bleeding and he had to go to the hospital because he put vodka in his butt. So when we take the boofing, which is the butt chugging, and then we add eater to it. Is Cowboy Bebop, in fact, about slurping alcohol out of an anus? Colin. I don't think that's ever been uh, denied at any point. I think we understood that from the very first episode. Uh, I'd like that added to the Wikipedia page for Cowboy Bebop immediately. I mean, they call it red eye for a reason, don't they? Mm Mm-hmm. We're hitting on a lot of heavy shit today. (laughs) By the way, of course, the mention of a prairie oyster... Perks up VT's ears, who mentions that's what her husband used to drink. Antonio, Carlos, and Jobin are back. Their first appearance since the casino in episode three. And they're literally throwing down a hundred woolongs for a guess. All cash. One try for all three of you guys? That's right. All right, suit yourself. Here it is, VT. I think your name is... Adrienne. That's just gotta be it, right? But Adrienne doesn't start with a V. Ah, you see, we should have stuck with Letitia. Yeah. So and it's and it's just it. such a natural way to kind of introduce the concept to Spike. Like, people are doing this to her constantly, and this is all going to pay off later for Spike. And, of course, it teaches us that she hates bounty hunters. And poor Spike. He gets a phone call from Jet. So VT picks up, like, this plastic check. It looked really cool and just threw it right in his face, said, get lost, not paying for your drinks. And I love the waitress immediately be like, Spike! She's, <laughs> she's only on Spike for like 20 minutes and she's so protective. He's a hottie, come on. I guess so. He's a boo feeder. Oh, Cowboy no. boof bop. No. Uh, ooh, <laughs> no. Either way, uh, Spike actually never gets that guess and he leaves. But even VT's adorable cat Zeros communicates his disappointment by nuzzling the bar and making a little noise. Outside the diner, Spike discovers his ship is completely wrecked by these sombros, and Muriel was all there to see it. <laughs> My ship! Yeah, they wrecked it. Those guys you beat up, they're called the Something Brothers. You were watching? Uh-huh. <clears throat> so, Muriel, why didn't you tell me about it? But I did tell you. I told you just now. Let's talk about this for a minute right here. How good is the voice acting in this episode? Uh, everything from the over-the-top Sumbros to the ditzy blonde, whose name is Muriel, <laughs> which, by the way, is performed by Rebecca Fordstadt. And really, the star of the show is Melody Spivak as VT. Now, you might assume that Melody is a prolific voice actor in anime, and you'd be right. What you might not assume is she's also a stunt performer. And if you've actually seen her work in Silk Stockings, the TV show, if you've seen that show, Princess Diaries 2, Royal Engagement, and The Mask. And she was even the fight choreographer on the 2007 Star Wars fan film, Forced Alliance. Who knows why she was there? (laughs) And I think, really, um, VT is excellent because she doesn't have a whole lot of range, nor should she. But she's very good at communicating sincerity, yeah, I think. Absolutely. This and this this next scene is great too because after VT and Spike just have this falling out where she finds out he's a bounty hunter, uh, we realize Spike doesn't have a way home <laughs> yeah. because his spaceship got fucked up. And obviously Faye doesn't have a way home because well, her spaceship got fucked up. So Jet's not answering calls. Um, yeah, that is a good point. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So Spike is basically like hitchhiking, and she's like, fine. And he's just like, by the way, there's two of us. <laughs> just like, yeah, he's just there with a thumb out. Mm-hmm. Like, this is like 1921. Uh, we never talk about the commercial cards, by the way. We never have, where it cuts to Cowboy Bebop. This episode, we're going to start talking about them. Now, in the past, it's been things like graffiti or, you know, Battle of Fallen Angels, and then you saw Cowboy Bebop written over and over again. Here's where things start to get a little weird. Yeah, I was going to ask about this one because I couldn't figure out what it was. My guess is that it is a cow on top of a mountaintop. 
and there's a wolf looking at the cow. Okay. Which is kind of cool. I was very confused. Like, I, I was just staring at it like... Ugh. I love it. We're, you're going to see some weird ones later on. Most of them are just saying Cowboy Bebop, but there are some choice moments. Choice. How wonderful is it seeing Faye with a with a facial mask and Spike in his, like, waiting for his Dude, clothes to dry? I, I don't even give a shit about her facial mask. Spike, after, like, his, you know, extreme night of drinking or whatever the hell he was going through, being all hungover, taking a poop, he's, like, washing his clothes or whatever, but he's just sitting there in, like, his underwear, but he's still wearing his tie for some reason. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, which is great because it's a very in-character thing for him to do because he's just like, yeah, I'm sitting here in my underwear hungover because I probably puked on my pants or something, but I'm still cool. Or I think he actually has washed his clothes since he was out drinking. I think he's washing his clothes because he spilt the egg on it. Now, while they're doing this stuff, Jet is is fixing the, the fucked up spacecrafts, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a really weird thing that happens here, and I think it's an oopsie. Uh-oh. And I don't know if you caught it. There's a scene, it's like an overhead scene when he's sort of like when they're talking and he's fixing the spaceship and stuff and Ayn is in the scene. Ayn's legs are just moving. Yeah. But he, he's not going anywhere. It looks like he's like trotting in place. Yeah. But it's weird because they're like, it's not like he's just like being playful or moving around. He's just like, like he looks like a toy. Someone's going to freak out. Yes, that's later in the episode before they take off. That's when it happens. But it's a, that's because there's zero gravity in the bay. Oh, okay. So that's why it happens. It just looks really weird because no one else is doing that shit, right? Nope. But that makes it even better because he's just like, I'm just going to keep on moving. I guess it's because they all wear those boots, right? Yeah, I don't know. But that seems something like there's something going on that's with like that. That's like some episode four shit when, when they're on the outside of the spacecraft and they're like stuck to the spacecraft because they're wearing the boots. And earlier this episode with the guy who was walking on the ceiling and then he turned it off and jumped towards VT. Yeah, and so because Zero's the cat, and I don't have adorable little magnetic animal booties, yeah. they get to float around. This all makes sense. I'm glad we got to work this out on air because I was very confused. Floating Ayn is amazing. Possibly my favorite Ayn moment. No, there's so much better Ayn coming up. Meanwhile, VT's co-worker from before that we were just talking about with those boots, he's on the radio and he explains to VT that he was just hit by a Decker, or at least he was hit by a truck, with Sars Wadi drawn on it. We'll talk about that in a moment. And so she calls around to different truckers, which all have their unique themes and decorative looks, which might seem kind of weird for a Japanese cartoon, but boy oh boy do we have a factoid mashup to explain why this scene, and really this entire episode, exists. Unlike the West, Japan's freight trucks experienced an artistic boom in the 1990s known as Dekotora, or decorative trucks, which are known for their elaborate props and extravagant graphical design. A lot of the credit is due to the schlock film director, Norbunny Suzuki, who somehow directed 56 fucking movies in 25 years. Which I know kind of sounds crazy, but again, when you're kind of part of this studio system, whether it's Toei or Nakatsu or some of the other Japanese studios, they're just pumping this shit out nonstop. So in the 60s and the 1950s, uh, but mostly in the 60s, we had this artistic movement called the Japanese New Wave. Artsy fartsy, not not in like you know a negative way, but it, it's clearly like this is an art film. This is what we watch in film school. This isn't like fun time, make money, the movie, and also a lot of hard left politics. So it's like, oh look, Marxist critique of Japanese culture. Also bone in. Alongside that, you had your yakuza, your gangster films, things like that. And then we move into the 1970s, and we know based on previous episodes that the cowboy bebop dudes are and and ladies are super into 1970s cinema. So you had a lot of grindhouse stuff going on. A continuation of the sexuality from the Japanese new wave. You had the gangster violence 
from these studio films from studios like Nikatsu. And then you had just a sprinkling of weird American culture. They really like to emphasize in a lot of these, uh, the women, the delinquent girls. And so this kind of spawned a subgenre, which is still alive today, although it sort of fizzled out in the late 90s, called pink or pinky or pinky violence. It's girls and sex and violence. And a lot of women stabbing people. Why are they stabbing so many people? Uh, there's also female prisoner scorpion, which I own the box set of. They're actually really good, I swear to God. But if you're a fan of Tarantino and like Kill Bill and stuff like that, you certainly see elements of this in there, but also they're kind of like, mm, skeezy, because a lot of times while they have like cool, badass ladies, these movies like to put them in sort of really uncomfortable, derogatory, um, like the rape revenge trope, where it's just like, yes, in order to be empowered, this woman had to be sexually assaulted by nine dudes. And it's just like, that's horrible. Okay. Suzuki is done directing those girl boss movies. He wants to do something different. It's the 1970s. Gotta change it up, baby. So he creates this new comedy series called Torokayaro, or The Truck Rascals. It stars two truck rascals, and they're usually trying to trick women into having sex with them. Like when they're asleep or in the shower. Not creepy at all. No. Nope. They also get crazy drunk, and then there's a fight scene, and eventually one of them falls in love with a woman, but they realize that they still love the road. So they have to help that woman get into another relationship. And then the last part always consists of a deadline where they have to haul ass in their trucks. Now, no joke, there were 10 of these movies in four years. But if you were a kid in the 1970s in Japan, like a lot of the Bebop staff were, then these were the naughty adult comedies that were mostly watched by children and teens, actually. But the important part is all of their trucks were covered in paintings and cool effects that you didn't see anywhere in the real world. Anyway, flash forward 20 years later, and those kids that grew up watching those movies now are truck drivers. And they created Decotora, an actual subculture of making really cool-looking trucks. People covered every inch of their truck in LED lights. Or they'd add unique art like a tattoo with panthers or dragons or a goddess. And they're often referenced in anime in the 90s, as well as video games like Street Fighter Alpha, where Decotora served as a background stage and was reused in Street Fighter Cross Tekken. And now you see why Cowboy Bebop is suddenly giving an entire episode of Truckers. And this is why Decker would actually have a gigantic mural for Saraswati. But who is Saraswati? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, she's actually a Hindu goddess of art, wisdom, and really any form of intellectual creativity. Funny enough, there actually is a Japanese version of her, known as Benzai Tan. Though, as per usual, Bebop is far more multinational in its universe, and so they went with the Hindu goddess instead. And finally, we have to talk about CB Radio, which actually stands for Cowboy Bebop Radio, which is where the show gets its name. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? You no-sold that shit. <laughs> I, I'm not selling for that nonsense. <laughs> 
No, it was actually Citizen Band Radio. You're so funny, Colin. You with your funny jokes. This is a serious show where we do very serious research. No, it stands for Citizen Band Radio, a sort of pre-internet meets walkie-talkie, which was widely adopted by truckers in the 1970s to keep each other in the know about traffic jams, gas prices, and police speed traps. How does it work in space? Actually, probably like how it works for NASA today, with giant, huge radio receivers. It's not so much the transmission... It's the receiver. Cue the music from C.W. McCall's Convoy. Yes, trucker culture in the 70s was everywhere. Anyway, VT discovers Decker is hiding out in the Linus mines and puts in a call to the Bebop. Why does she feel the need to catch Decker herself? I don't know. Why were they mining for blankets? Oh, stop. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, I, I kind of wondered about that, too, because I know we learned later that her husband was a bounty hunter. And she, by proxy, had to be involved in that. Yeah, had to be involved in that. But she was not into the bounty hunter life because that's what took down her husband. And it seems like she's very resentful of his career choice and yada, 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 yada. I have no clue why she's so involved invested because the only thing like the only thing that has her attached to this at all was her buddy called her up and so is she that bummed out that her bro got sideswiped like is is that so serious to her actually yes now that you phrase it that way that would totally make sense because we saw previously muriel the waitress was being harassed by these sombros and so she stepped in if you mess with hers she's gonna mess with you all right character consistency and this is also where we hear the song doggy dog three it's one of the few times yoko kano deliberately repeated a song with different arrangements and tempo all right so at this point spike and Faye sort of like race to their ships uh but jet warns them, and this is this is key, that the artillery hasn't been set up. And this is where, not before, I'm an idiot, this is where we see Ayn doing the little spacewalk. It's so happy. He's it so happy. He's enjoying himself. He's a happy guy. Again, in classic Bebop form, they, they kind of chase them into the Linus mine, and VT's there, and Decker's there, uh, but Decker, because he's smuggling explosives, he uses some and that causes the mine to cave in because why the fuck would you throw explosives in a mine you big dummy? Is he not someone who understands explosives? He just has them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, if, if he's do, if he's doing like illegal smuggling, then he probably doesn't know shit all about him, I guess. But anyways <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> he's dead. His head goes through the windshield and then the mine starts caving in. So this is great because once again uh, the team, team Bebop is unable to actually get a bounty. Yeah, and also he had no lines of dialogue. Zero lines of dialogue. <laughs> dialogue for Woody Allen. I don't think you can blame it on Spike and Faye for once. That is true. It is actually not directly their fault. They weren't in the mine at all when he blew himself up. That's fair. We do get that awesome moment where they know that they have to escape and Spike is actually like straight up telling VT like, hey, turn 20 degrees to the left or whatever so they can try to escape. But like we were just talking about, this is this is what we're talking about the story. The small touches. They're caved in. They don't have artillery right now. There's no missiles because Jet was fixing the spaceships uh, because Decker, he blew up the red tail. And the Sombrero Bros, they wrecked the Swordfish too. Everything, there's no wasted moments. Everything is connected together. This also, the, the breakneck pace of this episode, it's very reminiscent of episode two. Totally, yeah. Same writer. Same writer. Makes sense. But Just, she also wrote Battle to Fallen Angels, so. Which is, that's kind of crazy. I mean, I guess that's a different type of episode. But we need to talk about Spike saying, excuse me, just like Steve Martin does. Gun, you'll never blast through like that. Well, excuse me. I have no artillery. Oh, I, I was thinking, you know what I was thinking, though? What? Like, I, I recognize the Steve Martin reference, but the first thing that popped in my head, do you know what it was? Zelda. Zelda. Excuse me, princess. Also, what's kind of cool is VT is the one that suggests that they use the explosives. So she's being resourceful. She's helping out the team. And she's also like 
hilariously cynical the entire time because Faye's like, oh, I'm not good at being delicate. Blah, 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 blah. And VT's like, well, no big deal. It's just super hard. And if you fuck up, we'll all die. And it's like, oh, yeah, you will. Now, Spike does this thing next where he launches the pod of the Swordfish 2. It's supposed to launch in 40 seconds. And he says he's going to do his flying act or his floating act. He plugs his ears and jumps into space. <laughs> now, it's inside the mine, but he jumps into space, right? Yeah. So, obviously, I know where you're going with oh, this. Oh, yes. What would happen? If you were exposed to space. Your fucking, like, brain would explode. Like, you'd fucking, like, freeze instantly and, like, turn into fucking shards of human popsicle. Now, many of those are actually misconceptions. You wouldn't turn into a popsicle. Eventually, you would. In fact, your body would actually take 24 hours to freeze completely, believe it or not. Four, uh, 24 to 48, depending on where you are, because, of course, there's also a lot of radiation in space as well. Can the body survive in space? Hell to the nah. Spike plugs his ears and he holds his breath. Also, not good because it would cause the gas to escape by exploding your lungs. Eventually. Not to mention your skin would begin to lose all of its water within a few seconds, causing bloating. Oh, and your eyes and your tongue would also lose its fluid. This would all occur within two minutes. So we know for a fact that Spike said his thing to set off in 40 seconds. Spike should have said something before jumping out of his ship. The only reason they did this is to make the scene tense. I don't know about you, but like... Whenever people can't breathe in a movie, I actually get a little tense myself. Yeah, well, it's cool how they deal with it too, because you kind of have like the false finish here, where he he goes to like grab her hand, and he and he just and he misses, and then he does this thing where he's floating away, and it gets kind of quiet, and you're like, oh fuck! But then he busts out the gun, right? And then he like shoots himself and it propels him backwards and he kind of like jumps off something and then he's able to get in. That's worth it right there. No matter how unrealistic this scene is, I actually did Google. What would happen if you shot a gun in space? What? Yeah. What that? What would? You'd probably like launch your ass pretty far, right? Uh, more or less, you would get half the ricochet. I don't know what terminology it is here, but he would the actually blowback, right? Sure, but he'd actually be going slower than you would expect. He's moving far faster here than he would be in space, but he would move. Okay. So. Well, because I, I was watching, or I wasn't watching, I was I was reading Twitter and like Neil deGrasse Tyson was doing his thing where oh, he's just fuck. like, oh, I'm going to say something real sciencey now. <clears throat> Sorry, I fucking hate Neil deGrasse Tyson on Twitter. So he said something like, any expelled fluid can propel you in space, like spit or whatever. And then so, and then the first reply was some guy was just like, so what you saying, if, if, if I bust in space, I'm going to rock it? <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> let's just say, though, that entire scene of Spike just in zero gravity is so fucking cool. It is. It's a good scene. Uh, but he does eventually make it to VT's truck. And when he does, the locket is actually floating around. We actually see the locket almost fly out. Oh, my God. We almost skipped a really important scene. When she opens up the truck and all the air is getting sucked out, Zeros is clinging for life. Oh, yeah. The kid, I thought we were going to lose the cat for a second. I got very concerned. Me, too. Don't worry, because the cat would, like, vomit in space and fly back up. But of course, Spike actually looks inside of it and he sees what's going on. And he knows who VT is. But of course, Zeros actually tries to sit on top of Spike's head just like he has before. I love that. Just that whole Zeros is addicted to just sitting on top of Spike's head. It's just so cute. Where did he learn that? Well, inside the locket, we see that there's actually a kitten version of Zeros on top of Uriel's head. Super Aww. cute. And Spike announces that her name is Victoria Terpspolet. I tried to pronounce that as best I could. The wife of the world-famous bounty hunter. VT admits that, yep, that's her, and tells Spike that Uriel passed away years ago as she hands Spike the entire stack of cash. But instead, 
he only takes 100 Wulong bill. Now I thought about this for a moment because it's kind of weird. He tried to give her 100 Wulongs and she said no. Do you remember mm. that? Yeah. Because she got mad because he went, nah, I'm not paying for your drinks. Yeah. And so he had to drop the 100 Wulong on the drinks. So by doing this, she actually did pay for Spike's drinks. It's kind of funny. But he lets her keep the rest of the money, telling her to spend it on a prairie oyster for her husband when she meets him in heaven as we cut to see you space cowboy. I wish this episode would have been 20 seconds longer. I wish we would have had an establishing shot of them returning to the bebop. So just as Spike is about to leave, this conversation happens. And you might say, why? Why does it matter where it is? Because I find the emotional state of being unable to breathe and being sucked into space and then immediately being like, I know who your husband was. It's too fast for me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's kind of Cowboy Bebop in a nutshell for me. I really enjoy this show, but a lot of these episodes move so fucking fast and there's so much going on and everything feels like it just starts abruptly, ends abruptly. And that's partially due to the format, you know, but every time I watch an episode, I'm like, can I have like 10 more minutes? <laughs> also worth pointing out, Faye actually grabs the swordfish too with her pinchers when they escape. Maybe you're um, right. Maybe this does move too fast. <laughs> right? I don't even remember them leaving. Exactly. Ooh. But let's find out the most important thing about this episode. How many cigarettes did Spike smoke? None! Zero again. However, VT actually smoked two cigarettes. Maybe he switched to nicotine patches. Space nicotine patch! All right, Steve. Let's get to the most important moment. Doctor, can you tell us what is the score for this week's Inometer? Well, you know, it's a tough one that I had to really consider. And, uh, you know, I, I went back and forth on this one. A lot of long nights. But I will say, uh, despite the fact that Zero's the cat is adorable and also looks like my old cat who passed away several months ago. God bless his soul. Ein still had the bean sprout scene, and he had the funny little floating scene that I thought was a cute error, but when in fact it made perfect sense because I'm an idiot. So let me tell you, on that alone, Sven! 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 What is that? It's, uh, that's 10 in German. <laughs> Oh, good boy, Ein, a 10 out of 10, I assume. But Steve, you have been digging in the depths of Funimation and Air Movie Database. Can you tell us what the scores are? Yeah, wow, my favorite places. Um, Funimation has four stars, which at this point we can say is pretty much the series average. Every fucking episode has like four stars yep. or close to it. Yep. IMDb is a 6.8, which matches the current score of Stray Dog Strut and Gateway Shuffle and also falls into what we have coined the standard deviation for IMDb, which well, is uh, like 6.8, between 6.8 and 7.2. Now, this can also be applied, other than IMDb, to uh, scores for albums on Pitchfork. I think that's criminally under rated to put this on the same level as those two other episodes. Even though I love Stray Dog and I wasn't a huge fan of Gateway Shuffle, I think of this as an improvement. But Steve, what say you, heavy metal queen? Yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned that it was written by the same person as Stray Dog Struck because it makes perfect sense just the way it kind of flows. I think overall it's a better episode than that. Uh, it's a better episode than Gateway Shuffle, even though I love Gateway Shuffle for weird reasons. Um, but yeah, it's it's just it's another one of those really good one-off episodes. Absolutely. Well, you might not know this, Steve, but over in the anime community, there's a term known as filler. Basically, whenever something does not directly progress a plot, it is known as filler. And it's kind of a negative term in the anime world. I can see that. It's interesting, though, because I feel like a lot of these episodes so far have been filler episodes. Bebop is mostly filler. That's what makes it fun. But I got to say, this is my favorite kind of filler because we learn about a person. We learn about VT. She's not a crew member. 
There's no real change in the long-term dynamic. She's not going to be back. Spoiler alert, you're not going to see VT again. But in just 22 minutes, we learn about her. We learn about her cat. We learn how admired and respected she is. We learn about her past. She's a complete character by the end of this episode. And that's remarkable. There's enough room to have Spike and Faye and Jet put on these amazing performances. I love this episode. This is one of my favorites. Now, I'm glad Bebop hasn't done any spinoffs or sequels, but if it had to, this would be the character. This would be the one that I would want to see. I could handle another 22 minutes or a full series just on Zeros and, and VT, but I'm glad we don't have any spinoffs. Bebop is better for being a standalone universe. But that's going to have to do it for this episode. Steve, where can people reach you on the internet? I'm glad you asked, Colin. Uh, you can find me on Twitter.com, at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve, C-U-F-F. You can also go on OptimismVaccine.com, which is where this podcast is hosted, uh, along with a bunch of other awesome podcasts that we do about pop culture, film, TV, all kinds of good stuff. We have a brand new episode that just came out about the recent string of uh, contemporary horror films and the term elevated horror that John Krasinski, that dork from The Office, decided to use. And so we might make fun of him a little bit. Anyways, check it out. It's a lot of fun. In addition to that, we've got some great articles, all kinds of cool stuff for you. And if you like this podcast, make sure you check out Optimism Vaccine on iTunes, okay? If you look in the description of this podcast that you are actually listening to right now, there's even a link. You don't even have to do anything. Just tap that shit. Click that shit. Whatever. It helps. It helps so much. It helps our visibility. If you give us a five-star review and if you write an actual like written review, and it could be like two lines like, yo, Stephen Collin are dope. Uh, I think Colin has a beautiful body. You can write that. Very good, Steve. Well, you can find me on the internet on Twitter at Dr. Crychop. That's at Dr. Crychop. And you can find my video game video stuff at videogamesardumb.com and youtube.com slash videogamesardumb. But that's going to do it for this episode of Wulong Club. For Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. Sometimes I like to do the previews all by myself, even though I haven't seen the next episode. But that's okay, because you shouldn't judge someone's ability to explain something just because they don't know what it is. Case in point, I've never had flan, but I assume it's some sort of egg dessert. Is it good? I wouldn't know. But if I had to guess, it's the greatest dessert ever made. Will I eat some? Well, I suppose that's up to Father Time to decide. But I will be going to a Mexican restaurant soon. Next episode, Waltz for ZZ. And remember, never take your desserts to go.